0: I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles if you would to the book of Philippians. Philippians, and I want to read it's really just one section out of one verse of scripture today. Today I want to talk to you about press on toward the goal. Press on toward the goal. Paul gave us a principle that is vitally important not only for individuals but also for us as a church. And just, you know, been mulling over in my head and what, what it is that Julian mentioned about uh, Easter coming up and how it would be wonderful to just sort of strap somebody into your car and get them here, but uh, that kind of confirms I really wanted to challenge this church on Easter or, or approaching Easter to find one person that you can invite to church for that day. Uh, And certainly, you say, well, they're going to make excuses. They're going to, you know, they're going to say no. Uh, It's an amazing thing how we are people of faith, and yet we have such little faith when it comes to an invitation. Something like that. Um, And so I want to challenge you. Find one person that you can invite and just say, Lord, I'm going to believe you that they're going to accept the invitation. I'm going to believe you that they will come And do what you have to do to get them here. Uh, If you have a vehicle and that vehicle does not arrive at church full, say, I got room in my car. If you don't have a vehicle and you know they live close by and you live close by, say, I'll walk with you or I'll take the bus with you or I'll do what needs to be done to get you here. But I believe that God wants us to begin to, to get these goals in our hearts and our minds rather than just sort of going through the motions on a Sunday by Sunday basis. And then when we leave this building, we forget all about Praise Tabernacle and and the challenges that we face. God has put us here not just to sit here and die. He has put us here to grow. He has put us here to grow in many ways. And so I want to encourage you. I know that many of you say, well, the most important thing is spiritual growth and maturity in the Lord. Well, certainly for you as an individual, that is absolutely right. It is vitally important. But you're not the only one who needs to go to heaven. You're not the only one who needs to grow. There are those who have yet to come into the kingdom, and they need to be brought into the kingdom. In many ways, it's like what Jesus said it, and as he tells the parable, he says, go out into the highways and the byways and compel them to come in. You're going to find those with excuses, but you will find those who have a need. And we encourage you. I want to really challenge you uh, to reach out to somebody and just say, listen, Easter Sunday morning, come to church with me. And, uh, and let's believe God for his grace. But we need to get these goals in our minds. It's vitally important for us as a church to have the goals that I'm going to talk about today in the forefront of our hearts and in our minds. If we don't have it, I believe that we can certainly begin to lull into a spiritual sleep and we can uh, begin to die off spiritually if we are not careful, if we don't have these forever in front of us. So today I want to just read this one verse of Scripture. The Bible says this, It says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Notice what Paul says at the very beginning of that verse. He says, I press on toward the goal. We have to have goals. And I I really say, Pastor, this sounds very much like uh, a New Year's sermon. Well, it's not. Uh, We've got to have these goals in our minds and got to have these things in front of us on a regular basis because if we don't have them, we're not going to hit anything. If you say, I'm just going to be a Christian, I'm just going to remain open to what God wants me to do, you better be really careful because you're being open to whatever God wants you to do, and I, I don't have any doubt that we ought to be, But from time to time, we can become so spiritually dull that we miss the opportunities when God has presented them to us, and we're just saying, Well, just going through Christian life. Thank God I'm on my way to heaven. God has called us to greater things, He has called us to more powerful things. And Paul says this in verse 13 of chapter 2 of Philippians He says, For it is God who works. In you to will and to act according to His good pleasure. Heavenly goals depend on our willingness to submit to the plan of God and then let Him work in us according to His pleasure. So God is going to help you so long as we submit to the will of God. Now, what kind of goals do we need to have as individuals and as a church? It is this. First, we need to have the goal and press on toward the goal of more powerful supplication. What do we mean by that? Prayer. When it all comes down to it, God has called the believer to pray. He has called you and I. You say, well, you know, I'm just not one of those individuals who can come and just you know, I lift my voice really loud like some other people do, and I'm kind of quiet and reserved. That's all right. You don't need to pray loud. Just pray. You don't need to, to you know, to, to draw all kinds of attention only on you. You can just call upon the name of the Lord however you know how, but you need to pray. We need to pray as individuals. We need to call upon Him and cry out to Him in a mighty, mighty way. Well, how do we do that? It's by asking. Say, I'm not really sure how to pray, Pastor. You know, how do I address God? How is it that I'm supposed to really pray to the Lord? Well, the Bible lets us know this in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7. says, ask, and it will be given to you. So you can ask. There is the idea of asking in this, this, uh, this realm of prayer and supplication. You can ask God. Prayer involves asking God for pretty much everything. It's asking God for anything and everything in your life. You say, well, I'm not sure that God is really concerned about what it is that I'm going to ask him for. Give it a try. You don't know until you ask. It's like somebody once said, you don't shoot for the stars, you never hit them. Well, this is this basic idea unless we have that goal of prayer and powerful supplication in our lives, and unless we come to God and we begin to ask God, how is it that we can ever arrive at the idea that he would actually do it? The Bible says that you don't have because you don't ask. And then James goes on and begins to talk about what, why it is that we're sometimes asking. He gets down to the motive. But the first part of that principle is you you don't have it because you're not asking. We can ask God and begin to believe that he is going to work. Is it going to happen immediately? I've heard people say, well, I prayed and it didn't work. Well, you know, God is not exactly on your timetable. You know, I realize that our life is one assignment after another, and most of us are familiar with deadlines. How many of you are familiar with deadlines? Of course you are because you went to school and starting at first grade, kindergarten even, you had a deadline for a project. You had something that had to be in on a certain date. Now you've gone to college. You know your professor. Your professor says your paper is due on this day. You have to hand it in. And you know on that particular day you've got to hand that thing in. And then we go on in life and we... Realize we get into a job, your boss gives you a project to complete, he wants you to do something, and and or and and they want you to hand it in at a particular time. They need it on their desk at a particular day and a particular time. There are deadlines. We know all about that. Unfortunately, folks, for many of us, we think God is on a deadline. He's not. He is not on a deadline, folks. So keep on asking, keep on praying. Keep on seeking. We have got to make it our goal to pray until we see an answer. And then when you see an answer in that thing, you pray for something else. Not only is there asking, but there is in this powerful supplication the idea of intercession. And that is praying for those who can't help themselves. You don't need to turn there, but just you can write the, if you're writing notes, you can write the scripture down and go there later. In Ezekiel 22 and verse 30, the Bible says this I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found none. That verse out of the Old Testament rings through to us here in the New Testament age. And it lets us know that we need to stand in the gap for those who don't know Christ, for those who are apart from Him, for those who are, who are around us, and they don't know about the love of Jesus and what it is that He's done for them. And we need to pray all the more. We need to intercede. Maybe you've got a, a loved one, a co-worker, a friend, a neighbor, somebody and, and you look at them on a daily basis and, and somewhere along the way the impression comes to you from the Holy Spirit. You need to pray for that individual. You need to cry out to God. And yet many times we just sort of push that away thinking, oh, what good is my prayer going to do? And yet the Bible says that God was looking for somebody who would stand in the gap, and who would call upon Him, who would change the situation. And brothers and sisters, we have been called to pray, not only for ourselves, but we have been called to pray for those who cannot help themselves. I'm reminded in the New Testament about the man who was brought to Jesus by four men. The Bible says that the house where Jesus was teaching was packed full of synagogue leaders Pharisees and all kinds of of teachers of the law. These were the religious leaders who had come and they're packed so tightly into this house and here come four men up to this house with a man carrying a man on a mat and they're carrying this guy to bring him to Jesus. He can't walk. He has never been able to walk and so they're bringing him. Now you would think that that crew that had packed into the house, would look out and see this this poor man laying on a mat, and they would clear out of the room and give some space. But they didn't. They just stayed right there. So what did those guys do? The Bible says that they went up to the roof, and they started digging a hole. I don't know whose house it was. (laughs) I'd have a little something to say. You know, somebody started digging a hole in my roof. You know, I'm sorry. We'll clear room out. No, it didn't happen that way. They dug a hole, a giant hole, a hole big enough to fit a man laying on a mat down in front of Jesus. I don't know how they figured out where Jesus was exactly, but nonetheless, they just started. They dug the hole, they dug the hole, they dug the hole, and they got it big enough, and they started letting this man down, and everybody in the room was going, oh, what's that? And they let him down, and they put him in front of Jesus And Jesus says, son, your your sins are forgiven you. Which was, for everybody there, was a very strange way to heal the man. But nonetheless, that was the greatest healing that he really needed anyway. Your sins are forgiven you. But I want you to look at the four men. The four men didn't give up when they saw the house packed. They didn't give up when they saw that maybe the door was closed and they wouldn't be able to get in. They didn't give up. When they saw that somehow they weren't able to make it past whatever obstructions there were. But instead, they allowed their faith to take them to new heights. And they, they interceded. Say they didn't pray. No, they let him down in front of the one who is able to do something wonderful. And when you pray on behalf of somebody else, that's exactly what you're doing. You're letting them down right in front of the one who is able to help and to minister. They've got all kinds of obstacles in their lives that are keeping them out of the kingdom and keeping them out of the presence of the Lord. But what you do when you begin to intercede on their behalf is you begin to let them down in front of the Lord. You overcome their obstacles for them through the avenue of prayer and Faith. I hope you got that because Lord knows I can't repeat it. But I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I believe with all my heart that God has called each and every one of us to intercede. How do we do this? Well, we do it individually. The Bible says in James chapter 5 and verse 16 the prayer of the righteous man is powerful and effective. The prayer of the righteous man is powerful and effective effective. Uh, on an individual basis, you can pray and begin to see God do great and mighty things. There's an interesting story. One that I, When I read it, I was very, very encouraged about the fact that we can pray as individuals. And it may take time to begin to see things occur. There's a, a pastor from Australia by the name of Brian tells this story. He says his wife Angie went to a rough school, a rough high school. There are very few Christians there apart from one teacher by the name of David Bunton. Years after leaving Bunton's classroom, dozens of his former students became believers. Many had entered the ministry and gone into the mission field, and there were uh, just a, a number of, of former students who had done all of those things, and in the ministry today, and Brian says, I tracked down this teacher, Mr. Bunton, who is 70 years old and retired at this point, and he said he was stunned with emotion when he heard, when I told him of the many conversations of his, or conversions, of his former students, as we had that conversation, and I told him about it, about how all of these former students had gotten saved, given their hearts to the Lord, and gone into the ministry. And he said, I asked him about his influence and asked him how his influence had brought such a harvest. And he told me that many times that he had prayed softly over his classes as he sat at his desk and watched them work. And he said, apart from that, he had nothing to do to influence these these, uh, students toward Christ. He simply sat at his desk and he prayed quietly. And softly. Never once standing up and using that classroom as some kind of a a pulpit to share a message. Never once doing that. But the only thing he did was he prayed. He prayed. And he prayed, and he prayed as one man, as one individual. Listen, the enemy might come along and might tell you, your prayer is not going to work, it's not going to do anything. Can I encourage you, keep on praying, keep on interceding, keep on believing. Not only do we do this as individuals, but also corporately together. When we come together and we pray together for those who are sick and those who are down, those who are discouraged and going through great, difficulties and dark moments, I want to tell you the corporate prayer of this place, when this body joins together and begins to cry out to the Lord, we can begin to see God do great and mighty things. You know, over the history of this church, over the past 17 and a half years, we have seen God do great and mighty things. Why? Simply because a group of people got together and they called upon the Lord like they owned the problem. And God has called each and every one of us to join together, to pray, to cry out to the Lord, to seek Him with all of our hearts and begin to see God do great and mighty things. So we've got to press on toward the goal of powerful supplication. But we also have to press on toward the goal of more purposeful service. More purposeful service. That is... There is, and one of the things that we're going to have to recognize is there is a sacrifice for serving. Listen to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. Actually, turn over there if you would. Just take, take a moment, go over to Matthew 20 and verse 28. The Bible says this. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, notice that, Jesus didn't come to be served by us or by anybody at that point, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not come into the world, he says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. Paul actually says this and he reiterates this idea at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2 when he talks about how Jesus humbled himself and humbled himself to the form of a servant. He served those that were around constantly. You see, when we serve the way that Jesus served, it will cost us. It will take our time, it will take our effort, and in some countries, like they pray for in prayer for the persecuted church, in some countries, it costs them their families, it costs them their lives, it costs them everything. But when we serve Him, brothers and sisters, great and mighty things can happen in and through our lives. God does not use individuals who are full of talent. He uses individuals who are willing to serve him and willing to go forward and do what God has called them to do. Listen, if God is beginning to close doors in front of you in one way, it could be that God is trying to direct you and lead you and guide you into another avenue, another path in a way that maybe somehow in the midst of all of that, God is going to use you to a greater capacity. But we have to have the attitude, Lord, I'm not here to be served i want to serve you with everything that is within me jesus prayed in the garden of gethsemane if it is possible let this cup pass from me but nevertheless not my will but yours be done In every way, Jesus came to serve right down to the very end when he prayed and he poured his heart out to the Father when he recognized the cross is in front of me. I'm going to have to go through great pain and suffering. I'm going to have to go through incredible things, not only as a man, but also as the Son of God, as as being fully divine. I'm going to have to take things on me in this moment, at this time, that are incredible. Nobody can fully comprehend it. He said, if it's your will, Father, let the cup pass. From me, but nevertheless, it's not my will but yours that has to be done. That is what service is about. There is a sacrifice to serving. The pervading attitude that allows for this kind of sacrifice is selflessness. There is a selflessness to service. Over in First Peter chapter 4 and verse 10, the Bible says this each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Did you notice the first part of that? 1 Peter 4 and verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Not yourself. Not what you can get out of life, not what you can do in your own, you know, to to spend it, as James says, on your own desires and your own wants, but to serve others. If God has called you to something, He has gifted you in some way, it is for you to serve other people. God wants you to be a servant. Why? Because that's what Jesus was. He is our supreme example. We're to be like Jesus. So he says this, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. God wants us to be servants. More than anything else in our Christianity, brothers and sisters, he needs people who are willing to serve him. You say, well, I don't know what I can do. I don't know how I can do it. Well, it comes down to this. Really, in the end, here's what it comes down to. Remember when God called Moses out of the desert? and he wanted him to go back into Egypt to help deliver the people of God who were under slavery. He said to Moses, he said this one thing. He said, Moses, what do you have in your hand? What do you have in your hand? Well, I have a rod. Fine, I'll use that. A rod, this, is, this wasn't even a gift that he had. This was an object And yet God looked at that object and said, Moses, this is what you've got. It's what you depend on. You're a shepherd. You've got a staff in your hand. So you know what? I'm going to use that. And and wherever Moses went, there went the staff. There went the rod with him. And sure enough, God used Whatever it was that he had in his hand, whatever talents, whatever abilities, whatever things you might have and God has put into your life, God has called us to be available to say, Lord, I will be used by you and I want to serve you with those giftings and those abilities that I might have. Now, we have to press on to one final thing. And that is the goal of more precious souls. The goal of more precious souls. You look around you in the world today and you realize there are so many people who are lost without Jesus Christ. And I know that the popular thing is to just somehow, you know, finagle with the message and change the message so it becomes, you know, easy for everybody. But you know what? That's not what the Bible says. It's not how... We approach lost souls, souls who need to come into the kingdom of God. There is a message of hope because of the cross of Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, when it all comes down to it, it is, as Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. We have to believe that God has called us to serve in such a way that it will cause us to go out and to minister to those who are hurting, those who are lost. And without any kind of hope in the kingdom, we have got to get a hold of this calling and this plan. Jesus said to his disciples right before he ascended into heaven, he said, he said go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. God has called us to do that. And I encourage you, brothers and sisters, God can use absolutely anybody to accomplish that task. It's not somebody that he's called in the ministry to preach in a pulpit. It's not somebody that he's called to... You know, has a powerful voice and, and can sing so great and wonderfully and, and everybody wants to hear. And it's, it's not that. It is God has called each and every one of us where we live on a daily basis, where we go to work, the things that we do. He has called us all to deliver the gospel message that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and through faith in Him we can have hope and we can have everlasting life nearly 200 years ago, maybe more than that now. There were two brothers, one by the name of John and the other by the name of David Livingstone. John had set his mind on making money to become wealthy, and he did just that. But under his name in an old edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, John Livingstone is listed simply as the brother of David Livingstone. So who was David? While John had dedicated himself to making money, David had knelt and prayed, surrendering himself to Christ. He resolved, I will place no value on anything I have or possess unless it is in a relationship to the ki- or in relationship to the kingdom of god the inscription over his burial place in westminster abbey reads this for 30 years his life was spent in an unwearied effort to evangelize on his 59th birthday david livingstone wrote my jesus my king my life, my all. I again dedicate my whole self to thee. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, I don't want to be the brother of anybody. I, I, I'm the brother of two, three, but I don't want to be the brother known as just the brother of. I want to be known as somebody and it's not that, that my goal is to be known, but I want to be known by, by the kingdom. I want to be known as somebody who went after those who are hurting and those who are lost and those who are without hope and those who are bound for their in their souls and on their way to hell. We need to preach the gospel. We need to deliver the message of hope, brothers and sisters, that Christ died for our sins and rose again on the third day and became. He rose again. There is life and there is hope and there is help for those who are down and out and those who are hurting. To reach this goal, we've got to have two things. We've got to have, first of all, vision. We have to have vision. We have to see past ourselves and past our own little worlds and begin to see people as he sees them. Jesus was able to look beyond the confusion. He was able to look beyond the pain. He was able to look beyond the anger and the frustration that binds people's hearts, and he was able to see them as lost souls. The Bible says that he looked out over the multitudes that were there, and he was able to see those who, as the Bible says, they were scattered like sheep without a shepherd. The other thing that we have to have is we have to have compassion. Oh, we have to pray, Lord, bathe us with your compassion once again. Help us to to feel and to sense what it is that you sense when you look down and you see those who are lost and without hope. When you see those who are hurting, the Bible lets us know that when Jesus looked out over the multitudes in the end of Matthew chapter 9, it says that he was moved with compassion. There is an inner disturbance of the heart that moves you to do something about what you see in front of you. It changes you. It causes you to do something. It moves you to action. Compassion is not just some kind of a a pity, you know, a sort of a feeling of pity. It is an action word. It moves you to do something about the problem that is there in front of you. You say, well, I don't really know what to do about some problems and some things that, you know, there's some issues that people have in life. I'm not sure how to handle that. I'm not sure what to say. But I want to tell you that true compassion will drive you to your knees, and then it will drive you to the need. Because it's only in the presence of the Lord that we find the ability and we find the power to overcome and the power to be able to minister to some of the deep needs of people's lives. Say, I don't know what to do. Get into the prayer closet. Begin to cry out to the Lord and say, God, I pray that you would help me to minister to those who are hurting and those who, who are in need of great compassion. We need to pray as never before as a church. The church of Jesus Christ is asleep on this issue. We're asleep on the, the whole idea of compassion. You know what? In many cases, what we have tried to create is we've tried to create a little social club that everybody can just some, somehow get together because, well, they're just like me. You know what? I'm glad this church looks as, as different as you look around the room as it does because it lets us know, you know what, we're not meeting here together because everybody is just like me. Wouldn't that be boring? Wouldn't it be boring if, you know, the person sitting next to you acted just like you, talked just like you, looked just like you, was just like you? I mean, you mistake them for your twin, you know? Wouldn't it be boring? But you know what? That's not what the kingdom of God is all about. God has called us to reach out to a lost and a dying world, no matter what they look like, no matter what they act like, no matter how they talk, no matter what is going on on the inside. Jesus still died for their sins. He still died on the cross so that they could have life and they could have it more abundantly. He's not out to build a social club. He is out to build his kingdom. And we need to get in line with that as well and say, Lord, help us to have compassion for those who are lost. I want to close with this. R.A. Torrey once wrote, I can give a prescription that will bring revival, revival to any church, any community, or any city on earth. First, he said, let a few Christians get thoroughly right with God. If this is not done, the rest will come to nothing. Second, let them bind themselves together to pray for revival until God opens the windows of heaven and comes down. Third, let them put themselves at the disposal of God for his use. Here's the service. As he he sees fit in winning others to Christ. This is all. I've given this prescription around the world, and in no instance has it failed because it cannot fail. Brothers and sisters, in the end, when it all comes down to it, it comes down to prayer, service, and souls. Supplication, service, and souls crying out to the Lord and reaching out for more of Him so that He can use us in the world that we are living in. Brothers and sisters, God has more for you than what it is that you have in your minds. He has more in store for you than what you can begin to imagine or you can begin to think. But so often we think that God is just sort of a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want us to have any fun. He doesn't want us to have any enjoyment in life. He doesn't want us to enjoy good things in life. But you know what? God is not even about all the enjoyment. He's about using you for His kingdom. No greater joy than when we see somebody come and stand at this altar and pray a prayer for salvation. No greater joy than when you're out on the street and you hand somebody a tract and you begin to talk to them about the Lord and they begin to open up their hearts and their minds begin to share with you and you can pray with them right there on the street. No greater joy than seeing some lost soul come into the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for everybody who is in this place today. But God doesn't want us to stay this way, He wants us to grow. He wants us to be more than what we are. He wants to use us so that the kingdom of God can grow, so that this city can be one to Jesus Christ. Can we stand to our feet right now?